Welcome to the Intern Whisperer Live, the show all about the future of work. On today's show, we are looking at the cybersecurity industry. So what does that mean? We talk about that. We talk about job opportunities in the future and the impact that COVID-19 has had on the industry and for business owners. So let's talk about what cybersecurity actually means. According to digitalguardian.com, cybersecurity refers to the body of technologies, processes, and practices designed to protect networks, devices, programs, and data from attack. You know, I had something happen to me, and this is full disclosure here. I was using my computer and I clicked on an ad on the left-hand or right-hand side of my screen and some type of a virus immediately attacked my computer. And it was, I did not have malware, I guess, I'm not sure, but it said right now they are downloading child pornography onto my computer. And I went, oh my God, what's happening? No kidding. And I'm going, I'm hitting my keyboards. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to shut it off. Nothing is going on. It was terrifying for me because I'm going, the FBI is coming to get me. I'm going to get, I'm going to go to jail. What is this happening here? Anyway, long story short, you know, I took it in, they were able to fix it. And so the value of having a really strong um, cybersecurity, whether it's for home or in the business place, a cybersecurity policy in the business place, but also taking care of good measures to protect your computer, it's so important. So that's why I'm just wanting to bring that example up because I'm pretty sure some of our listeners may have heard something like that. So cybersecurity is also referred to as an information technology security. I've really never heard it said that way. I always hear cybersecurity, but I wanted our audience to be on the same page as to what that means. Um, some of the research that you did, Caesar, was looking at the history of it, and we're gonna condense it down into like a really, really short version of it. But many people assume that cybersecurity is a new industry when really it all started, you know, within the last decade. Um, cybersecurity dates back to the 70s before most people even had a computer. We weren't even thinking about it. It was used in the military. And so researching hacking incidents that took place before computers is where we were starting. So 1971, what was the first uh, computer worm that you found when doing this research? I found it, it was 1971. It was a person named Bob Thomas. He created a program that was like widely accepted as like the first like ever computer worm. So this worm like basically bounced around from computer to computer, which is like at the time was like groundbreaking because no one, I don't think I like, the first worm that I ever got on my computer was like when I was like 10 years old. So that was like, I was like really freaked out when I saw, but I digress. But yeah, that was really groundbreaking at the time, like 1971. So this worm was like, you would think it would be like, like malicious, like it would like be hurtful to the computer, try to like mess up the system of the computer, but it wasn't, it really was just there. It was just like there in the computer. So, but it displayed like a message that said, and I quote, I'm the creeper, catch me if you can. That's that had to be really weird. Right? Because imagine you, you're you on a computer one day, you just see, you're just like, is someone here? Like, what is happening? Yeah, but I can't, that, that would freak me out. I'm getting like chills right now thinking about that message on my I screen. Know. Yeah. It, it sounds me. like it's even a horror movie somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And so then the first denial of service, that's a 
there's an acronym for that, DOS attack occurred. And that was in 1988 where Robert Morris created a computer worm, which slowed the early internet down significantly. This DOS attack, it was documented in history, but it actually didn't necessarily do as much damage as some of the other things that have happened. So he created it just to highlight security flaws, such as weak passwords that many people use, like, oh, 1234, like that's a bad password. Now the code, um, however, the code made the worm replicate excessively, causing damages that were estimated around $10 million, anywhere from 100,000 to 10 million. That is a lot of money. It resulted in a partition of the internet that just kept it, you know, waited and shut down for a little while. And that's significant because that's what can happen. Your computer can get shut down. It can cause problems with um, other people getting access to your address book and then just taking that virus out around the world globally. The next one, I thought this was interesting. Why don't you talk about the next one? So the next one is a worm and it's called I Love You Worm. So this worm infected over a million computers worldwide. From me, within the a few hours, a few hours of being released. This worm is, according to the research, is one of the most damaging worms in history. So how much did it cost to secure? I don't know, but we'll have to go and check that one out. Why don't you look that up while I'm talking about hacktivism history mm -hmm. and the Homeland Security. So Homeland Security, in 2002, George Bush um, what, filed a bill to create the Department of Homeland Security. This department took on responsibilities for IT infrastructure and eventually created a division specifically for cybersecurity. So that's when our country started getting behind this and realizing we gotta, we gotta do better. That hacktivism history was in 2003, and this was an anonymous group. Uh, anonymous was the name of it, actually. And it was an intentional hacktivist group known for a variety of cyber attacks against several governments, organizations, and some other groups, businesses. They are by far the most iconic group of hackers in the world. And the group is known for their Guy Fox masks that harken back to V for Vendetta. They were out to try and take some of our government and our, our businesses down just to be able to make a, a, a real name for themselves as somebody that could do that. And that's significant. That's really why a lot of people go and try and and take people's accounts. Even recently that happened to Twitter where Twitter was surprised that hackers were able to get into well-known like President Barack Obama, um, President Trump and take over their accounts. And that was, that's scary because they could go and say, oh, the missiles just launched it's, and start a world war, you know, and you just don't even know. Any luck finding that um, cost of that worm? Yeah, so I did some little bit of quick research. So it turned out that that worm was created by a 24-year-old resident in the Philippines. So it's kind of interesting that someone so young can create such a problematic like device. So the, the impact of that worm was estimated, it was estimated to have cost over 5.5 through 8.8 billion Dollars Holy worldwide. cow. Yeah, that's a lot of bacon. Yeah, that's a really hard hit. 
And the estimated cost to remove that one was over 10 to $15 billion. So that so was much for I love you, right? Yeah, right. And, you know, I don't know exactly how um, I would think that people, cal you know, figure out how much that, that cost is, is based on having to research it, having to identify where it came from, having to go and, and figure out how they can eradicate it. All of those are part of the definitely the process of how you get rid of anything that's on the internet. And that can be one person, it could be 100 people, but it's, that's part of how they estimate that cost. And since it was global, it's pulling together people all over the world. So Wiki, WikiLeaks and beyond, um, by far one of the most notorious leaks in history was the result in WikiLeaks in 2016. And they published documents uh, about a national committee email that got leaked out. And this email link involved Russian intelligence hackers and greatly affected how Americans viewed the 2016 election. And that was with, um, I believe it was Hillary Clinton and Trump. Oh, mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, that would have been true. So there was a lot of that that was going on. So cybersecurity remains a chaotic force. Uh, in 2018, it was a year where some people saw that it was the largest and most culturally notable cybersecurity attacks you know, ever. We learned a lot and Facebook has taught us that social media is selling our data. data. And some of the things that also happened during that time is Marriott Hotel, um, they had security breaches that nobody had ever noticed before. Dunkin' Donuts also that no one is safe. We talked about you know presidential candidates and how that impacted obviously the just the race itself as to who's going to be president. Um, this is really really a problem, and it can cause you know global shutdowns just like the pandemic has caused, where it impacted us economically. It can also impact us in the same way when people, businesses, their accounts are compromised, data is compromised, uh, people are able to take your life savings out of the bank. All of these are the things that can happen because of that. So it's really our mutual as a, you know, people around the world, our responsibility is to hold ourselves responsible and make sure that we protect those passwords, make sure that we are not sharing them. Um, you might periodically even go and update your passwords, do a little check on your computer and see, gee, do I have anything that's compromised? I know that Facebook honestly does, that's what they do is they sell ads. So they do collect all of this information. They're like, what did I just go and click on? I like the food channel. I like uh, you know, tasty. I like all of these different things that are related to food. So, you know, they're gathering that. They know what gender you are. They know what age you are. They know what race you are. They also know what you like to watch, you know, and that's, uh, that's a lot of information that you may not, you as a person may not want to have shared out there. So let's look at the rise of the connected device. Um, go ahead. Why don't you share this next section, Caesar? So as of 2020, it's estimated that there are roughly 6.8 internet connected devices, IOT, per person around the globe. Imagine that many, imagine one person having that many devices, like six phones, like that's Well, think about it. Like how many, you know, in your home, you know, your parents have, have a phone, right? But mm -hmm. then everybody, some people even have tablets. 
then you also have personal computers. So one person could actually have maybe two phones, one for personal use, one for business. They could have a tablet, then they could have maybe even two computers. That is a lot of equipment. It really is. Yeah, it's a lot. It's, it's interesting to see how now we're like, that's like a common base. So this is why it also matters. Do you have Netflix? Do you have Hulu? I do, yes. So do you watch them through your phone and also through your computer and maybe if you have a tablet? Yes, I do. So that's really what we're talking about here is all of these devices are all connected together. It increases the opportunity because we're switching between the devices that our data is being exposed and how frequently you know we log in, we log out. That's all significant. People are picking that up. They're paying attention to it. Um, whether they are the provider of the service, if it's, you know, for videos or streaming anything, games, that's there, but they are gathering things. So we have a couple of experts that are going to be weighing in on this topic, and one of them is Walt Yates. He is a Marine veteran. He has gaming industry experience and a deep understanding of cybersecurity uh, when he was in the military. So we're going to go ahead and pull that interview into this sequence right now. So welcome, Walt. I'm so glad to have you as a guest on our show. And what exactly is cybersecurity? I know you've worked on both sides of the industry, military as well as you know, civilian life here. Okay. Well, I, I like to frame this. My perspective is coming mostly from being a government program manager and having to balance the, the triad of cost, schedule, and performance for the, the systems that I managed, which were training systems and simulations. And by virtue of the fact that simulations mostly operate over distributed networks, or at least on information technology, everything I managed has cybersecurity requirements because the way the DOD defines it is if it stores, processes, displays, transmits, or receives ones and zeros, you have, you have cybersecurity context. Security are those measures you take to prevent the enemy from surprising you. You don't want the enemy to, to show up and behave or, or attack you when you're not expecting it. And it's a little bit different than defense because defense, you're oriented on the enemy, the enemy's oriented on you. There's not a lot of surprise, but security is protection from an attack in an unknown direction. So cybersecurity pertains to our information systems and networks and defending what, what they call the three, the, the CIA, the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data and, and your systems and networks. That's what cybersecurity is in, in terms of a technical definition. And what so was that? Do you think do you think it actually is the same in the civilian world here? Because I know that you mentioned the military side. I think it is. It, it the principles are are the same. You know, shrinking your your vulnerability as small as possible and, and then protecting it in a cost-effective way based on the, the language that they use in the public law and the Office of Management and Budget Policy and National Institutes for Standards and Technology is the same. It says commensurate with the level of harm that could result from unauthorized misuse, destruction, corruption, et cetera. So what do you think the top five cybersecurity threats are? Phishing, hacking? I'm probably, since my perspective is policy-wise and, and, and not as much on the, I, I couldn't tell you the latest emergent threats that a, a technical practitioner would, but I'll tell you that in general categories, 
the largest threat is and remains the insider threat. It's it, it's the, the person who is vetted, but perhaps not well enough, that has malicious intent, that you, you look for personnel reliability. And, and every year on the government side, you have to undergo training to refresh yourself on indicators of personnel that might be compromised. Somebody who's acting erratically, who is accumulating large debts, living beyond their means, making speeches that indicate a disloyalty or anger at the United States or their company or whatever, those people are vulnerable to exploitation. So the insider threat is one that always has to be considered, and that's malicious threat. Secondly, I would consider laziness, complacency to be the, the next biggest threat. And so that therein comes the question of how much, how much of my resources and budget for cybersecurity do I spend on prevention and protection? And how much do I spend on a reserve capacity to reboot and reconstitute after I've been taken down. And I think too often, especially in the government, we, we view cybersecurity as a matter of honor and chivalry, that we're going to draw a perimeter and keep the bad guys out of it. And the truth is, they're already inside here with us today, right now. If you don't have your data and applications backed up off-site, offline, so that they have to be manually, physically reconstituted, maybe you should think about that. I think that's really interesting because I, I don't think that most people would think of that, honestly. I think a lot of people use Google products, so, you know, it's in the cloud. And you also raised the question of, you know, something being an in-house threat. I don't know how hard it is to get a job with Google because I often think about that. And I'm going, they have probably thousands of people hired. How hard is that vetting process? How much access do they get? to information because I know when I do any type of a shared screen call with any platform I use, they're always able to access data in many instances because they have an account in front of them that's got my name and my company name. So I think that's really, an, I would agree with you, those are the two biggest uh, problems because people, 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 we're all messy. Anyway, going on to the third one, what are the costs of a cybersecurity attack? Do you know well, any figures that you could share by chance? No, and that's, that's a, everybody has estimates, but nobody has authoritative data. You know, you get wildly huge estimates, but nobody can tell us the cost of Edward Snowden's compromise of the NSA and top secret assets in the government year, years later. And I think one of our problems is we don't have a good method of cost estimation for cybersecurity breaches. And I offer for consideration that for most other things we do, so take radioactivity. We have lots of different measures of radioactivity exposure. We have RIMS, sieverts, all sorts of different measurements for the effect of radiation on material and live tissue and so forth. Um, and they're usually... The, the, they're like microsieverts or millirems and, you know, very small percentages. And that's how they, they measure it for, for most routine exposures. I would like to offer for consideration that we need a unit of measurement for information compromise so that we could start to put things in perspective. So I would offer that we, we have a unit of measure called the Snowden, because we've already had a one Snowden magnitude event. And if we can say, for instance, my program, my system only contains 50 Pico Snowdens of risk, the worst thing you could do to me would be that fraction of 
of a Snowden episode, maybe you could come up with a better a better method of, of determining how much is enough to spend on that. Because if you treat all information as priceless, you'll spend every last dollar on patching and updating. So if you should have a risk-based strategy that's based on the probability that something will happen, a, a future root cause, and the impact if that risk becomes an issue, then you can make some informed decisions. But if you focus on a compliance and vulnerability focused strategy, you're going to go broke. You're going to spend all your money. You're going to feel very confident and you're going to lose everything eventually. And just ponder this. There is never going to be a last patch Tuesday from Microsoft. They will never patch the last bug and vulnerability. It just keeps going. So if there's an infinite number yet to be discovered, why would you put all of your resources on patching? I think I'm going to back up my data and say, hey, if and when that highly unlikely event becomes an issue, and then I'll, I'll reboot and reconstitute, I think I'll be better off than most people. How will people protect data in the future against cybersecurity attacks? You know, Caesar and I, we did a lot of research, and just so you know, Caesar is the um, intern with me, and we did a lot of research. And so there was some research as to the cost being either 100000 to $10 billion that it could cost just um, for some type of a cybersecurity attack. And I would believe that because it's something that's global. And how many people does it take to actually, you know, solve a problem and take it down around the world? Think of all those satellites yeah. where it goes. There's a lot. But anyway, how will people protect that? Because we know that they're able to, to hack things now. We've seen that happen in our elections four years ago. It's still something that's there. There's always international business, I don't know. I'm going, how are we going to protect that? Well, I, I think it, I don't get too panicked over getting notified by my credit card company that my, my card has been compromised and they're going to reissue it. it. It happens and it's happened. I don't think I've kept a credit card until the expiration date in over five years. And only one time was because it was actually used somewhere else. The other times it was because Target, Home Depot, other consumer places had a, a massive data breach. And just to be safe, we reissue every card that was uh, part of the compromise. So it, it, it costs a lot of money, but protect, you know, figure out what's worth protecting and either never put it online. If you do put it online, encrypt your data at rest so that if somebody comes in and steals your computer or your thumb drives, never have anything unencrypted on it, just as a, a general rule of thumb. But just because you can put everything online doesn't mean that you should. And, and some things, I don't keep a big file cabinet of papers anymore, but th there are things that I wouldn't put online. So, you know, it's, it's convenient. I can store it all on a thumb drive, but th that convenience is sometimes outweighed by the potential consequence if it were stolen or compromised. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. It's the same as if you don't want somebody to know something, you don't tell them. If you don't want somebody to see your passwords, you know, you keep them confidential and you put it someplace where it's safe. That's yeah, the other idea that um, I wish I could give proper attribution to uh, to the woman who, who I heard discuss this, but eight or nine years ago, the Office of Personnel Management, which has archives on all federal employees at Pueblo, Colorado, had 300 million employee records stolen. You know, the people who stole this aren't interested in your credit rating. They're interested in leverage for espionage, that 
if they want to know every spy and that, that came from the US that ever had federal employment, and then all of their relatives so they can exert coercive pressure on them. You know, it's, it was a, a, in all likelihood a state actor that did that. But you ask yourself, why in the world was all of that information able to be moved out of there so quickly? And the answer is, well, it's, it's a high bandwidth connection. You know, they just sucked it all out in, in a matter of minutes or hours at the most, and it wasn't noticed. Why would anybody ever legitimately need to grab more than a few dozen or hundred records at a time? Slower speed and bandwidth, a, a choke point is a good protection when you Somebody stealing data is bad. Somebody stealing huge amounts of data is much worse. Maybe you can tolerate a little bit slower service for that reason. Another, another example of that is authentication, where fast computers can do a brute force attack very quickly by trying billions of passwords very quickly. Well, I want to thank you so much. I think that your perspective is really important um, because I, I feel like in our country, many people value the military's expertise. It's the same as being with anybody that's an expert in that space because protecting our country, I mean, that is the expert, honestly. All right. Thank you very right. much, Isabella. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a good evening. Bye. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. So I want to say thanks again to Walt for his insight and sharing all of that wisdom with our listeners. I really appreciate it, and it was just so interesting. What did you think? Interesting also? Yeah, it was very, he, he said, he, he said a lot of things that I'm just like, well, he really like opened my eyes a little bit because I don't really know that much about cybersecurity, but he really like taught me something, educated me. That's good to hear. So now we're going to go and see what are the top five cybersecurity threats. Um, this is interesting also because ransomware, phishing, data leakage, hacking, and insider threat. You know, I was doing this research. I know you did also. And so this is what we came up with. So what is ransomware? Why don't you go ahead and share that definition for our listeners? So ransomware is a type of malicious software or malware that prevents you from accessing your computer files, your systems or networks and demand you pay a ransom for that return. That's crazy too. But, you know, that actually happens because I think, you know, that example I shared at the beginning of the show mm -hmm. As, mm -hmm. oh, we have downloaded child pornography content. It actually said that I needed to go to the FBI to find, uh, you know, to file a claim. I don't even oh. think that was true. But if I wanted to get my computer cleaned up, there was a pop-up that said, here, to get your computer, um, your data saved, you must click on, click on this link or call. And I went, that just sounds wrong too, but nonetheless, that's an example of ransomware. But phishing, phishing isn't the word that starts with the letter F, it's actually starting with the PH. So P-H-I-S-H, phishing. It's a form of fraud in which an attacker masquerades as a reputable entity or person in an email or in other forms of communication. Now, sometimes you have to think about this one too. I'm gonna to use another example. When I was president of a professional association, one of the things that happened is there was a phishing attack. And because my email was up there, my, my 
personal email, not my personal email, but my mm -hmm. company email. It was also up there at president at blah, blah, blah. And I'm not going to disclose the name because you know, I want to protect my organization there also. A hacker went and sent out emails saying that they were me to the other people in the groups and they were making some guesses because here it said president at organization.org. We had to, as an organization, go in there and figure out how are we going to protect the data inside of our members. And that's another example of phishing. But let's look at the definition of hacking. Why don't you go ahead and share that one? So hacking refers to the activities that seek to compromise digital devices, such as like computers, smartphones, tablets, even an entire networks. So things we use like on a daily basis. So I've read of some recent examples of hacking also, where people have gone in to take the games. It could be games that you play. It could be hacking into your um, bank account. This is an example that happened to a friend. She was doing some online shopping. She clicked on uh, something that she wanted to purchase and she gave her credit card. From doing that type of um, transaction, it turns out that her account immediately got hacked because I guess it wasn't a fully protected uh, business. I've had from experience, my trick is like, if I see something that like, oh, that's, I want that. I kind of look at the company's reviews of it. An insider threat. So this is one of the fifth one here. So it's a threat to an organization that comes from being negligent inside. There's people that are, maybe they're programmers and they can go and they have access to all of the data. So you have to do your due diligence when, even when you're hiring people, it could be former employees, former contractors, third party people that can be a part of your organization. Every employer should keep track of it so that they actually are able to protect their business and protect the data and you know, your own customers and your other you know, employees in there. How has COVID-19 changed security, cybersecurity for remote workers? I think this is gonna be a really interesting, um, I guess, problem that we experience moving into the future. It's been one whole year of being in COVID world and having to do things remotely. And I think it's, you know, we saw a lot of things that happened where there was like Zoom bombing, people just jumping into your Zoom. And there's a significant number of employees that are going back. And the first major cybersecurity trend that we have to pay attention to is gonna result into how have they been using their personal computers versus their office equipment. So last year, Many organizations rushed out the whole work from home opportunity and they didn't always have all of the resources that they needed. It led to an unprecedented 42% jump in the number of employees that were working from home, you know, as of June last year. So we really begin to see the consequences of 2020 of rush jobs. This is when employees get back in the office. Though, through, though an increased number of employees will receive vaccination this year, their devices and applications will still be infected. In June, researchers reported a sudden spike in attacks and data breaches originated from mobile endpoints. As more compromised devices re-enter the office and begin connecting with corporate assets and systems, we see the full impact of hasty remote work policies. 
So it's pretty much like what I was talking about, people using their own personal devices. Think about how many times um, they may not have been using their phones, their personal phones, for accessing their company um, drive. And I use, inside of Intern Pursuit, we use a Google Drive. Uh, we know that Google has a number of security measures in place that are compliant for GDPR, but also, you know, globally, they, they have millions of people using their, their platform. So they have to make sure that they are protecting the information. The other next section was about threat actors and the, how they will prioritize software as a service applications and cloud services. So one of the things that you and I were talking about earlier is what is this definition of an actor in this place of business terminology? It's not necessarily an actor that's on the stage. It's somebody that is coming in. They look like they're going to be safe, but they are not. They are really there to cause problems. So many businesses began relying on distributed workforces in 2020, meaning that they're all over. They're all over the country. They could be around the world, but at least outside of the common you know, workplace office. They broaden their footprints with a SaaS application and cloud services to be able to protect things. But the threat actors will likely prioritize these targets and find new ways to exploit them. They can use a two-step approach. And I've, I have had to do this on all of my devices where I have to log in with the password of my choice. And then there is a second step that I have to do to prove that I am really the person that belongs with this device and this account. That two-step process is very, very important because it does protect the person that uh, has access to that account. It's also protecting all of the data that's in place. Having complex passwords is another really good way of doing that. Then we have the vaccines and how they can give rise to misinformation and phishing attacks. And remember, we talked about what phishing attacks were. So let's go ahead and share this section here, Caesar. Why don't you go ahead and kick us off here? Okay, so vaccines are something that are ha happening more now. So maybe the worst thing of all is having the availability of, like, of real vaccines this year because I, I know I've seen, I've seen some ads like on TV or even not on TV, like just like on social media, mainly social media that say, oh, sign up for this and you get the vaccine. Well, you have to be very careful because that's a real threat. This obviously, you know, can really uh, damage public confidence in the use of the vaccines. We're going to take another moment to bring in another one of our experts. It's Bob Dixon. He is a former Army military strategist, and he now works as a consultant in the tech startup sector. So let's go ahead and hear from Bob what his thoughts are about cybersecurity. Bob, welcome to the Intern Whisper. So nice to have you as a guest here. Um, you, your background is in a really nice blend of being in the business world as well as being in the military. So I think that your perspective is going to be very valuable to our listening audience. What exactly is cybersecurity? Is it defined the same in the military world versus in the business world? I would think it's the same, but maybe not. You know, I was really surprised when I transitioned into the, the civilian world, how many things were similar. The vulnerabilities are the same. The, the idea of being able to secure your data is not in any way different. The consequences are different. The things that, that somebody might, a state actor attacking our state infrastructure might be different. 
But the things that you have to do to protect your data and to be safe are the same everywhere. The data doesn't really care what, uh, what organization symbol you have, whether it's a logo for your corporation or it's a military unit. It's, it's just data. And our biggest vulnerability is, is really the same. It's our people. I would totally agree with you. So something that was interesting that came up in our research is that cybersecurity was actually in play. I know this isn't one of the pieces of information I gave you, but back in 1970s, and I went, huh, who would have thought? I would have, I, now that I know that and from the research, it turns out like that was the military thing. So the military is like really, really involved, CIA, FBI, all of those organizations. They truly are, I guess, men in black, so to speak. <laughs> you guys know all of this great stuff that's out there that you know we as civilians don't know about. But anyway, I digress. I don't know. Share your thoughts, whatever you think on that one. Well, there are some great uh, minds at work on figuring out how to manipulate data and, and how to protect it, uh, both inside and outside of the government. And I think there's a healthy trading that goes on between the experts in the civilian world and the experts in government. Now, of course, once they share government secrets to people, then there comes into, you think a non-disclosure agreement's a little uncomfortable. You should see what you sign when you work with the NSA, but it, it is really <laughs> healthy for when things get discovered on how to best protect things, whether it's in government or in the civilian world, those get shared for the most part uh, so that we protect the infrastructure that makes America function. That's good to know. I'm really glad to hear that. So what are the top five cybersecurity threats? Our research was telling us like hacking and phishing and you know some other things that were out there, malware. Phishing and social engineering is, is really one of the top security threats. And, they, and the predators, they, they really prey on people who are in emotionally vulnerable states during natural disasters, pandemics, during holidays, preying on, on perhaps folks that are not as digitally literate. Mm -hmm. So you got your first computer, maybe your, your, your grandchild hasn't helped you set it up yet and you're, you're operating on it. And so you're, you're vulnerable there. Related to that is, is something called a vishing scam. Okay. And that's when they use voice. So they would maybe call you or get you to call a number mm -hmm. and get information from you. So it's a form of phishing, but it's called vishing. And there's another one that's becoming increasingly popular called smishing, an SMS or text attack. Uh, I've gotten all of those. <laughs> I, I, I'm so frustrated by it. I looked out on my phone. I'm like, oh gosh, somebody's got my... my uh, and, and it's really insulting because they tell me I need to lose weight, click here. Uh, or, yeah. Like, what is it? I guess they know me, but they get you to click on that. It brings you to a place where it's going to allow it access either to a computer or phone and, and give up information that you don't really want to give up. So mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the biggest thing of a basket of, of threats. I would say the second one is ransomware. It's not oh, as... Yeah is not as prevalent, I think, as the phishing scams, but they don't have to be as successful as often because it pays off. Mm -hmm. so, so the ransomwares, they lock down your data and won't give you access to it unless you pay a fee. And the experts tell you, don't pay. Mm -hmm. Don't pay. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't pay. You're just, you're negotiating with terrorists. Don't pay. That's really easy to say, except you really need your data to function. So it's hard to say what the real costs are. 
And we don't know how common it really is because a lot of people will pay and they will not report it. Yeah, see, I think that was what was going ransomware. I think that was what happened when, oh, we're downloading child pornography onto your computer. It's been reported. And they were asking me to call a number to get it obviously removed. I immediately did shut it down. I took it into a place to get it clean. And they said, don't ever click those ads on the side. Don't ever click anything that even says ad right. on, on the internet. And I went, got it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That is really, um, really valuable there. I would say an emerging threat is, is the use of personal devices for corporate work. Uh, and this is a, an offshoot of, of the pandemic. Uh, I agree. So many remote workforce uh, vulnerabilities have, have been introduced. You know, if, if I was issued a computer by the military, they would absolutely make sure that it was updated very frequently with the latest operating systems and, and antivirus I may not be as responsible with my personal equipment, but now the company's allowing me to log into their system mm -hmm. and it introduces so many different vulnerabilities. Passwords, I may not, I may not have a difficult password to guess, right? If yeah. it's my dog's name. Or your, it could be that now this happens, your cat is walking across the uh, computer, right? And I've seen that happen and then something just disconnected a call. I've also seen children that are playing with their parents' computers and then somehow they click on something and that messes things up. So you are so right. Pandemic has been something that um, employers have had to realize they have to put a bigger investment in personal equipment. And then how, what if that employee leaves? Now, how are you going to, you gotta sever the relationship with the provider that was protecting the equipment. Yeah, you can, you can. Expensive. It is expensive, and and I think you can you can protect a lot of their access to information. But what do you do about the information that they may already have, or the the processes that a third party may have already hacked from that personal equipment? It's tricky. Yeah. Very tricky. Yeah. Very. I, I would say the fourth category of vulnerabilities is the Internet of Things. This is when the machine talks to another machine without a human in it. Uh, I my example of of my Internet of Things is my printer. Uh, orders new print cartridges when it gets low and I don't even know about it. Uh, so what? I will get a new printer cartridge in the mail and then I'll look over and go, oh yeah, you were low. I didn't know that. No human huh. was involved in that transaction with the exception of the, the mail lady who brought it over to my house. Uh, it was all automated. So the internet of things, and there's lots of examples of machines talking to other machines. But I think that's probably in the terms and conditions that you we don't read and then we turn around and we're agreeing to it. And yeah, somehow we just got charged. We're going, where did this $98 <laughs> charge come from and why? I don't, don't remember doing it. That can happen. Terms. I, did, I did set that up intentionally uh, so that I didn't, because I'm lazy and, and I would forget to get print cartridges. But it's the, the idea that my machine sitting on my desk is talking to a machine somewhere in the world and it's causing shipments to happen. What if somebody got in the middle of that yep. and had some nefarious ideas about what could go on? And it's not just my printer cartridges being reordered. It's a airplane talking to a control tower. It is a car talking to another car once we are all connected on the roadways. 
lots of machines are talking to each other and we may not notice what's going wrong, especially mm -hmm. since when we first put things out on, on the internet of things to talk to each other, there were no security protocols for those. So, yep, that is very, very true. You know, and I hadn't thought about that because now cars are being enabled to have, you know, obviously Wi-Fi in them. And that just means that everything is connecting even more so. A big giant jigsaw puzzle that's going to have is. a big global picture. It is. I think there's so much good that will come from that, but the vulnerabilities will be introduced alongside all of the goodness. So that'll be, uh, that'll be interesting to see how it all plays. Mm -hmm. I, I think the fifth cybersecurity threat that, that we're really not sure how to exactly to deal with is, is cloud vulnerability. We, we often think, well, I put it in the cloud, Google or, or Apple or AWS is going to protect my information, but we don't really know where it is and how it's being replicated and, and, and how that works. And hackers and cyber threats are becoming increasingly sophisticated and using tools to be able to manipulate things in the cloud. I think that's a, a threat that we need to make sure we stay on top of as well. Those are all really good examples. Uh, some of them intersected with our research and you also brought up some really good ones that we hadn't even you know touched on. So I appreciate that. What are the costs of a cybersecurity attack? Now, some of our research showed anywhere from 100,000 to 10 billion. And I could understand that because the bigger the virus, the more it goes global, there's more satellites that you have to connect with. All of that is people and people cost money to try and figure it out and shut it down. So it depends of course on how you count. You could say a phishing scam that, that gets grandma for 150 bucks is, is going into the average, but how you count matters. The reports that I've, I've read on it says it's over a million dollars worldwide. In 2019, global data breaches averaged about $3.9 million, but those don't include the very large, what they call mega breaches, like Facebook or Equifax, when those things were, were breached. The US average in 2019 for, for cyber attacks was $8.2 million. The source of them is it's not just somebody grabbed $8.2 million out of someone's bank account. When you look at a business and how they, how they are weathering an attack, you have to look at the loss of productivity the loss of customer confidence, what are the long-term data costs, mitigation for future attacks. Oh, by the way, if you have cyber insurance, that price is going to go up because of the breach on you. So it's very difficult to nail down a number, but it's big and it's growing. It sure is. I agree with you. Our last question is, how do you think people will protect data in the future against cybersecurity attacks? Because we have... I have to sign on one way. I use a 16 character password, honestly. It has to have, you know, a number of, you know, capitals and lowercase and, and, you know, numbers and then also symbols. So, you know, I've made it complex. If somebody can figure it out, figure it out that's great. But it's, it's, it's hard <laughs> now. Really and then good. they maybe go and sign on again with another piece of information about myself. And, you know, we have 
multiple security passwords we have to use. Do you think there's something that we haven't thought of that's going to be coming down the pipeline or what do you think we have to do? I, I think things are going to be different, uh, you know, 15 years from now. It's very difficult. If you think back 15 years, there's no way you could have predicted the fact that we would be able to have such a great conversation on Zoom, right? The, the bandwidths just weren't there. So things will change in the environment, the context for cyber is going to be different in, in 15 years. I, I kind of think of security in, in the cyberspace kind of like the old West. You know, in, in, in the old West, the early days of expanding into the West, uh, travelers on any road anywhere knew that they were at risk, roaming bandits and outlaws. There's really no difference between that environment and what's going on in the cyber world, except now outlaws are much safer from retaliation. If you think about it, if they're going to attack a, a wagon train or a, or a stagecoach, they're going to have to think, okay, the guy up there has got a shotgun. We're going to have to defeat that. But there was some risk, some personal risk involved. And now in the cyber world, well, when they attack me, they're not at a big risk of me retaliating. Mm -hmm. I don't have the tools or the know-how to be able to lash back as if they were breaking into my home or attacking me on the road. When, when you have a risk of being robbed physically and you have a way to protect yourself, how do we think mentally how that might change in 2035? We can't really do the same things in cyber. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's so difficult is attribution. Who did it? Yes. Right? If, if someone's pointing a gun at me and I'm on the stagecoach and I've got a shotgun, I know who to shoot. But if, if somebody's breaking into my computer... I'm not really sure who it is. And I can't just fire back because they may be spoofing my next door neighbor. Yeah. And there's the dark web. People can hide now behind things. For sure. So unless uh, one of the reasons the West was one and, and that crime is, <laughs> it's safe to, to drive through Wyoming now is because law and order prevailed. Mm -hmm. So where is the law and order in the cyber world? How does that come about? And I, I think there's a couple of things that we're going to have to do to reach that level. There's, there's some things underway like a cyber crime treaty, international tri uh, cyber crime treaty. But I also think we need to pursue a international cyber warfare treaty, much like a nuclear mm -hmm. uh, non-aggression pact. If we could quit doing state-on-state -state stuff, that would dramatically reduce the number of cyber attacks because many, many, many of them are coming from state actors in a variety of places. As far as us personally, I think education is going to be a key. We need to understand how information is being used and how it's being accessed. I'm not sure why cyber protection is not a core class in, in high schools. You know, they, they kind of- Are you of, kidding? It would have to be in elementary school because keep in mind, true. these kids all have phones when they come out of the womb. Very <laughs> true. Very true. But it shouldn't be an elective. Cyber protection should be yeah. a core class. We're going to have to develop a class of cyber warriors. That would be elective. That would be, be post-secondary. I think our systems have to become more resilient, being able to survive attacks. And I think blockchain is going to be a key to that. I think the ability to replicate transactions in a secure way is going to eliminate things like ransomware. Blockchain may be the solution for that. I think artificial intelligence is going to play a huge role. Both sides are going to get it. They're both going to be able to develop capabilities. But I think, I think the good guys are going to outshine the bad guys when it comes to artificial intelligence. And that'll help protect us a lot. But I think... It's going to be a long, hard road. And, I, and until consequences are high enough that people, that, that cyber attacks are rare, I, I 
think we're going to be living with it. So mm. I think there's a couple of things that we do now that we're going to always have to do, and that's update your systems and your virus protection. Don't use the same password on every site. You should have a password manager of some kind. Use multi-factor authentication. I know it's a pain when you have to wait for a phone call or a text to come in to put in that code, but that requires at least two things for somebody to have to get. And don't share your personal information uh, with people unless you know exactly who they are. Those things I don't think are going to change. I think that people are going to still try to the, the digital con men out there are still going to try to pull it from you, but I, I have hope. I, I'm I'm an optimist. I, I think that the good guys are going to going to outclass the bad guys in the long run. It'll always be with us, but I think we can mitigate it. Yeah, I'm going to stay on that side of hope and uh, believe in that. I want to thank you again for being a guest. I think that your insight was very valuable and it gave real, you know, applicable tips to people that listen to our show, things that they can do that's within their control so they don't feel like there's nothing I can do. Well, yeah, there's a lot that you can do, you know, and you just covered it in those last two minutes there. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for for having me. I always uh, love talking with you and and I I hope your audience uh, gets a little something out of it. Thanks for what you do. Thank you. Again, what a great insight. And they all had different tips and suggestions on what we should know. I really appreciate that. Yeah, really interesting stuff, yeah. So what are the costs of cybersecurity attacks? We're going to just kind of breeze through this one relatively quickly here. So the latest forecast for global ransomware damage costs were anticipated to reach $20 billion by 2021, which is 57 times more than in 2015. That is unbelievable. I don't know about you, Caesar, but I'm going 57 times. That's a serious problem. That is a serious problem. Yeah. And that should, that shouldn't happen. No. Mm -mm. The next one that I'm going to go and point out, and you pick one from the list here too, but roughly 1 million more people join the internet every day. And there is an expectation that there will be 6 billion people connected to data by 2022. That, I don't know, but like we really need to think about the information that we're putting out there on our social channels. Uh, When we buy things, we like the convenience of being able to buy, but my goodness, we really need to pay attention to what we're actually putting out there and who has access when you, you know, check that box and it says agreeing to terms and conditions, that's when you can be waiving your right to having your information made public. What statistic do you find interesting here? So I found that more than half of all cyber attacks are committed against small to mid-sized businesses and 60% of them go out of business within six months of falling victim to a data breach or hack. I thought it was more like big organizations like, like oh, like the Twitter, the Facebook. I think they might be small mid-level businesses would have that issue. I don't know why I thought that, but I I think because I don't see that much in the news that that's not like really prominent, but like not many people know about that business. While Twitter, you can see everyone, everyone uses Twitter, everyone uses Facebook. That's everyone. So it's, it was, I found it really interesting to see like it's mainly small and mid-sized businesses that are having the problem with cyber attacks occurring to them more often than usual. Yep, I think that was significant. And one of the biggest business business groups is small business. There are over 30 million small businesses in the country. 
And that's a lot of people that may not be aware of what they should do to protect their business, to protect their data, to protect their customers. So, you know, it's, it's a big impact that it can have on a lot of people. So the lessons learned, it was a brutal year and it was also valuable. The pandemic demonstrated our strengths, but it also exposed a lot of the flaws and the assumptions and the weaknesses that we have. So let's see if we can learn something from here. Being safe isn't just enough anymore. We need to really make sure that we are being very careful in the hiring process of the people that we choose, do background checks, make sure that you're also keeping a checklist, like you know we had talked about, what can be done to protect businesses, asking employees to change passwords. These are all things that we've talked about. Those are really good tips. But we're going to go and jump into another section here, and we're going to look at cybersecurity careers. So one entry level job is an information security analyst. I totally think that would be the most important job for anybody to have because they would be responsible for protecting all of that information that is coming in and going out of the company. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, this person has a bachelor's degree before obtaining an entry-level job as an information security analyst, and the average wage is $56,000. So, you know, that's a, a decent wage there. But it, it's a lot of responsibility to make sure that a business is definitely protected. IT security analyst, what about that one? Why don't you share about that one? So the IT security analyst would be someone, as the candidate would be a person who has knowledge of network and cloud-based securities, and familiarity with virtualization and VMware. They, they may also be able to communicate clearly orally and, and write and work well both individually and with a team environment. The average value for this career is 92,616. So the malware analyst level two, that means it's not an entry level job. It's actually somebody that's got some experience behind them. They have to have strong communication skills, the ability to brief and communicate concisely, get directly to the point right away. And they don't necessarily have to have a lot of um, oversight. You know, they are pretty good with what they're doing. The average malware analyst is 90,000. So our last one is a digital data forensic examiner. That's a lot of words in there and they don't roll off of the tongue very easily. What I like about that one, forensic means they are digging into the details like a, a forensic uh, pathologist or the ones that are in the morgue, if you will, they go and they look inside of the bodies to see how was this person killed or you know, how did they die? Not killed, but how did they die? So I think that's very similar to this type of a role. It's, they're doing that deep kind of research to understand what happened here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this one? Digital data forensic examiner. They, they work effectively as a team contributor and could do independently with minimal supervised supervision or direction. They have strong and strong verbal and written communication skills, a familiarity with network infrastructure components, and as well as virtual and cloud environments, and to, and yet to, to have occasional travel. So the average salary for this career is 60834 60, so as we're getting ready to sign off on this episode of The Intern Whisperer, we always want to thank our sponsor, Cat5 Studios, our video and audio production team, Caesar and Ashley, and we have a new intern that's going to be joining us. 
And then we encourage our listeners to visit us at internpursuit.tech to learn how you can get matched with amazing intern talent as we continue to look at the future of work, what are the job opportunities and how, what is going on in industries as we move into the future. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you.